Welcome to another episode of Adding Context, a podcast of compelling conversations centered on advancing and enhancing the human experience. I am your host, Michael Bollins. Welcome back to another episode of Adding Context. Today I'm speaking to Mr. Steve Schwartz. Can you uh, tell us about yourself and what you do? Sure, Mike. So I, I started my career in artificial intelligence way back in 1979 when I moved to Connecticut to do postdoctoral research at Yale University with Roger Shank, who was one of the pioneers of, of AI. Then came several AI startups, one of which made a public offering, and another became one of the, the leading business intelligence products of the 1990s. And I've also invested in and or co-founded several other AI-based companies, as well as some non-AI-based companies. And more recently, uh, I wrote my book entitled uh, Evil Robots, Killer Computers, and Other Myths, The Truth About AI and the Future of Humanity. And I'm currently advising companies investing, writing, and speaking on AI. That's quite a quite a mouthful and a lot of things to do. <laughs> um I really wanted to know, what did AI look like in 1979? So, you know, AI's changed a lot over the years. Um, uh, it actually started, you know, kind of back in the 1950s. And if you don't mind, I, I, can I take you back to the 50s? Absolutely. <laughs> and I'll, I'll cover the 70s. So, you know, AI, AI kind of started when a group of professors asked the federal government to fund a 10-person summer-long study at Dartmouth College. Their proposal was to build a computer system in two months over the summer that could reason and understand language. And of course, they didn't come close to the goal, but each of the participants went on to become leaders in the field of AI. Much of the excitement around AI in the 1960s was in two areas, machine translation, you know, think Google Translate, mm -hmm. and neural networks. Uh, and, and received a great deal of U.S. federal funding, funding from the governments in the U.K. and other places in, around the world. But towards the end of the 1960s, two seminal papers were written, one that essentially declared machine translation by computer to be impossible, and the other that declared neural networks were computationally too computationally limited to ever produce intelligence. And as a result, result of these two papers, AI funding was cut dramatically and this was known as the first AI winter. And then in the 1970s and the 1980s, excitement built again around university laboratories that were making progress on building computer systems that simulated aspects of human intelligence, especially in natural language understanding, natural languages being the languages that people speak, and, and expert systems. E expert systems were uh, computer systems that could make expert-level decisions, uh, you know, like medical diagnosis, that sort of thing. In the early 80s, AI was on the cover of many news magazines. Investors poured money into AI companies, much like they do today. But unfortunately, those efforts failed to produce real-world working systems and interest. Um, and funding, once again, dried up by the end of the 1980s, and that was the second AI winter. And now we're kind of in the third cycle of AI. So it's hot for a third time. I, I can't imagine that the, the people that were involved in writing those papers, they kind of caused the, the first winter. 
I wonder what they would look at and, and how they would respect their work that they did looking at how things have progressed now. I mean, um, almost anybody that's got, at least anybody that has an iPhone is the, has the ability to translate language with their phone. Um, the ability for, um, neural networking, the idea for that, that's kind of, and I'm going to jump off to a tangent for a second. That's, that's kind of the stuff that people think about when they think of Skynet from Terminator and, and that type of, you know, evil forcing, um, takeovers, correct? Well, Neural networks today are actually behind um, most of the real breakthroughs in AI. Okay. So they're, they're, they're actually a reality today. And the, the paper in the, in the late 60s uh, by one of the authors was Marvin Minsky, who many people consider the father of AI. Um, there was actually a mistake in it, you know, and, and, and that mistake it was a correct paper, but it, it only looked at a limited type of neural network. Um, and now neural networks are much broader. Um, uh, and they can produce amazing things, but still not real intelligence. Your more recent book kind of goes over, uh, or at least it's titled about evil, evil robots taking over and such. Um, do you have any fear that AI will get to a point where there's the potential for machines to have that free thought and become evil, so to speak? I have, I have none, and that's that's really what my what my book's about. You know, AI's made great strides from an engineering perspective. You know, Siri answers our questions. We have Google Translate that helps us talk to taxi drivers and. In other countries, uh, our smartphones automatically identify the faces in our photos, and and to some degree, self-driving cars may even be on the horizon. Um, and, and that progress naturally leads people to wonder, where will it all end? You know, will, will AI robots get so smart that they try to exterminate us, or, or turn us into pets, or, or or even just take all our jobs? Um, and none of that's going to happen. Um, let me let me explain why. Let me just briefly explain how the main type of machine learning works. Machine learning being the the most prominent type of AI that's responsible for, you know, all the all the major breakthroughs, including the ones I just mentioned. So suppose you want to build a program to help diagnose a particular disease. So what you would do is you'd create a table of data. Each row in the table represents one person. Half the rows represent people who had the disease, and half the rows, people who don't have the disease. The, the row for each person contains features from the medical record that are important, like age, whether the person smokes, and so on. And that table of data is fed into a machine learning algorithm uh, known as, uh, as a supervised learning algorithm that learns a function that can predict whether a person has the disease based on their medical record. Now, it, it's interesting because it actually learns the function. A programmer doesn't have to program the function, and that's the big breakthrough of AI today. But a function is just a formula. So you probably remember learning formulas like the one that's used to convert centigrade temperatures into Fahrenheit. You, you probably don't remember what it is. <laughs> 
or you might remember what it is if you travel a lot, but you, you multiply the centigrade temperature by nine-fifths and add 32 degrees. So let me ask you a question. Is there any intelligence in that centigrade function? In the function itself? Yeah. I mean... It's just a formula. Yeah. <laughs> There's no intelligence there. Okay. The function that's learned to label faces in your smartphone photos, that's just a function. It's way more complex than converting the formula that converts centigrade to Fahrenheit, but it's just a function, and there's no more intelligence in that function than there is in the centigrade function. Every AI system that's in the real world today that does all the amazing things, each one can is just a learned function. It can only do one thing. It can convert centigrade to Fahrenheit. It can label the photos um, in your smartphone pictures. It can translate language. But each one of those things is is just a function with no intelligence. Is it, and I apologize, this sounds like an ignorant question. Is it safe to say that the term AI is a is a misnomer in that AI is really just a extremely efficient and rapid way of compiling data through formulas? You know, that's my belief. The, you know, what I just described to you, supervised learning, which is the major form of machine learning, which is the major form of AI. Supervised learning has been around for decades. I actually taught supervised learning at Towson University in the mid-1970s while I was getting my PhD at Johns Hopkins. And the basic paradigm that I just described, you know, you get a table of data, you feed it into a supervised learning program. It's exactly the same paradigm that's used today. The difference is back then we had less powerful computers and we had weaker, less powerful, less computationally powerful supervised learning algorithms. Today, same exact paradigm. We, we take that table of data, we feed it into a much more powerful computer, but now instead of uh, the older, simpler supervised learning algorithms like linear regression, we use complex neural networks. But it's still basically the same paradigm. And for actually... You know, it, it, it wouldn't work for machine translation or, or a lot of things, but for things like medical diagnosis, a lot of the times, plain old linear regression, which was around in the 70s and, and way before that, works just fine, especially on today's powerful computers. So uh, there was a special uh, involving Boston Dynamics, and, and they've done some phenomenal things with their robotic end of, of things. Absolutely. Um, I mean, the video I watched, it, it was a, a robot doing parkour, which blew me away. But one of the more poignant things that one of the programmers said is that everything that they do is just simply a line of code. And I think that's where a lot of people start. They, they divert from reality. And the reality is, is computers won't do anything unless they're coded and programmed to do so. Um, and then you get into the, the sci-fi end of things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, you know, the, the real innovation in, in today's form of AI, where you take that table of data and you learn a function, 
is that the computer actually does learn something. So a human doesn't have to program that function. The computer learns it, and that's, a, that's very powerful, and it's produced some amazing technology, and we, we all use AI every day. Um, so, I, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I don't want to minimize it, um, uh, but what it's learning is just one function, and computers can really only learn one function at a time. If you, if you take, a, if you take a, an AI system that learned to distinguish cats from dogs, images of cats from images of dogs, and you said, okay, now I also want it to distinguish monkeys from cats and dogs. It almost has to start from scratch. That's it, it, a, that's a little bit of a bad example. In that particular example, you wouldn't have to start completely from scratch. But if you wanted it to do medical diagnosis, start from scratch. And if it learned medical diagnosis, it would forget how to distinguish cats from dogs. Because the other process has taken over its primary uh, purpose. Because it can only learn one function. Understood. So the, the medical diagnosis function essentially erases the uh, cats and dogs function. What's your thought on government regulation for AI? So, you know, a lot of people think about AI as a, a, a unitary um, technology. It, if truly intelligent robots were really possible, we would need to regulate AI as a unitary as a unitary technology because we'd have uh, computers that could think and reason and you know possibly take over the world. They they likely become conscious if that happened, um, but it isn't going to happen. Uh, because we only know how to teach computers to learn a single function at a time. And there's no intelligence there. So they can't be consciousness, and, and that can't happen. Um, so instead, AI needs to be seen as many different capabilities that need to be regulated or not regulated individually. So, for example, discrimination is a big problem in AI systems. Discrimination needs to be regulated, especially... Um, when you use AI systems that that discriminate. Or could be exploited for that. Yeah. Same thing for privacy. Fake news. AI-based weapons of war. Um, you know, would ideally be regulated, although that requires, you know, cross-country cooperation, which is, which is difficult. Um, and the thing that scares me most in terms of regulation is actually self-driving vehicles. Why is, I think, why is that a bigger concern for you? So right now, I, I don't know if I don't know if you're aware or, or people are aware, but there are you know probably fifty, maybe a hundred manufacturers that are testing driverless cars and other types of autonomous vehicles on our roads today. Now, most of those tests are occurring with a safety operator behind the wheel who's responsible for taking over the steering, braking, acceleration whenever they detect an unsafe situation. Um, but we're also starting to see testing of cars without safety drivers. Completely autonomous. Completely autonomous. And the problem for me is that the governments are rushing the technology to market. Um, in, in the U.S., many states are allowing these cars on the road with no, with no testing, no proof of safety, you know, my belief 
is that legislators should develop safety standards for autonomous vehicles before they allow them on the road without safety drivers or, or remote operators. And, and there's even been proposed legislation to remove liability from manufacturers. You know, to me, that would be a disaster. That sounds ridiculous. Just, yeah, they just need to be held responsible for their autonomous vehicles or they won't have any incentive to wait till they're they're safe. And the, right. and the biggest issue for me with, with self-driving vehicles is that there's reasons, you know, a lot of people think, yeah, we have, you know, how many people are killed every year by human error? Self-driving vehicles will eliminate that. Um, plus, they don't drive drunk. They don't text. That's a great thing. But there are real, there are good reasons to believe that they, they'll be less safe than human drivers. If their primary focus is to monitor surrounding traffic and vehicles and conditions and things like that, and you do remove the human element, the, the capability of being intoxicated behind the wheel, uh, being distracted behind the wheel, how, how does that become a less safe environment? So you know, most of us have encountered unexpected phenomena while driving. You know, a flood makes the road difficult, impossible to navigate. There's a section of new asphalt that has no lines. You know, you, you come up to confusing lines on the, on the road, you know, black ice, fishtailing drivers, um, you know, an, an elderly driver falls asleep and heads right, right at you. That actually happened to me once. Oh, we, we all have our stories. And, you know, if you, if you talk to people about their unique stories, everybody's, every, almost everybody has a different story. There were over a billion and a half drivers in the world. If each one of those people has a unique story, no, never, never mind 10 of them, you know, that's a billion and a half unique things. And for a, because these self-driving cars can't think and reason, we handle these unexpected situations by thinking and reasoning. You know, we say, oh, yeah, uh, I hear uh, the, the Mr. Softy ice cream truck. I better watch out for children. Understood. Um, but computers, AI systems can't think or reason. So the only thing left for the manufacturers is to either program, to identify and program every one of these, quote unquote, unexpected situations, edge cases, they're called in the, in the industry, um, or to identify them and provide examples of each one in that big data set so the computer can learn to handle them. But they'd have to be identified essentially one by one and programmed manually um, uh, or, or given examples, really the real-world examples or simulated examples, and that's, that's going to be very difficult. I agree, and, and, and you pointed out a number of things that I think some of those instances – it's a lack of understanding on the human that caused things like, you know, black ice, if you don't know how to navigate it. And that could be something that could be programmed if the wheel, the vehicle feels a wheel slipping or losing traction, it would, you know, could be programmed to turn the other way and do all the things that we're trained to do as humans to, to navigate those kinds of situations. But, you know, things like, um, you know, the newly uh, laid pavement, things like that, that aren't lined. I could see where, some of those would become problematic. Yeah, I mean, if you take, let, let's let's say I'm right, and there were a billion and a half of those unique edge cases, you can take any one. You can take black ice or the unlined road, 
and you can train the computer to handle it. But how do you identify all billion and a half of those edge cases? That's that's right. the real problem. Right. So kind of moving forward a little bit, you touched a little bit on discrimination and safety issues. Um, how can AI be used to easily exploit cybersecurity and things like that? I mean, is that a multifunction kind of thing that would need to be navigated? So therefore, AI would not be capable of doing that? Or is it a matter of having a number of different AIs focusing on different things to, to be able to navigate certain breaches and such? So, you know, when it comes to cybersecurity, what, what people worry about is the idea of an intelligent virus that can think its way around the network. And that would be pretty scary. Yeah. <laughs> Fortunately, it's complete fiction. We can't, we don't know how to make computers that think. Right. So what's really happening in that, in cybersecurity, is that hackers are using AI to find vulnerabilities um, and, and build better viruses. Um, but defenders are also using AI to detect those viruses and, 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 and the attacks. So AI contributes to this cat and mouse game in cybersecurity. But on balance, I think it helps the defenders actually more than the hackers. Got it. Um, is it safe to say, because you kind of touched on reasoning being a, a key component, is it safe to say that computers will not lead us down the road to this dystopian future that is portrayed in movies and such because it, there's simply no way for computers to reason. Now granted, this is us speaking now and, and going back 30, 40 years ago, it, there was belief that there was no future in AI and, and we've clearly shown that in 40 years there's been massive progr uh, progress. Is there any chance that from what you know that in 40 years from now, computers will have the ability to reason? You know, it's it's foolhardy to say never. Right. You, 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 know, <laughs> you know, but um, is it is it reasonable to think that uh, we'll, we'll solve the uh, fountain of youth or that we'll invent time travel? You know, hyper hyperspeed, uh, what's it called on, on Star Trek? Uh, oh, uh, warp drive. Uh, Warp drive, um, uh, you know, I'd be, I'd be really surprised to see any of those things happen, but I wouldn't say never. Right. And I would put human level AI in that same category. We we also touched a little bit on on jobs and and IA taking over certain jobs. I can look back and and sit back and say, well, there's clearly a number of jobs that I just don't see. AI taking, and I'm, can, I think I'm a little more solid in that thought process after what you've told me so far. You know, construction jobs. You know, there's there certain aspects of construction and, and manual labor that I don't think we can ever even get a computer or a machine to to replicate. What types of jobs do you see as being kind of AI proof? So you know, I think the the the, the big fear about AI. Um, you know, it might even trump the fears about killer robots, is the fear that AI will take all our jobs. And if we could build robots with that human-level AI, with the ability to think and reason, think about it. They'd be able to read manuals. They'd be able to take classes. 
and they could learn to do almost every job. Right. And worse, they could read thousands of books in the time it takes a person to read one. And if that happened, almost every job would be at risk. But AI systems can't because we don't know how to build AI systems that can understand language or that can reason. Got it. Um, but there are some jobs that will be vulnerable. And they're the jobs that are single function jobs and that can be replaced by a computer that learns a mathematical function to perform that human function. So, you know, for example, uh, if somebody has a job of monitoring a cam camera feeds all day and their only job is to make sure nobody has a gun, well, that's something you can replace with a computer with a, with a with a computer system because you can you can build that large data set and train that data set to recognize if somebody's carrying a gun. Um, but most jobs are, are more than one function. People do a lot of different things, um, and in in most instances, AI will will help because it'll help. You know, it may do one thing and enable you to do all the other things better. Um, uh, you know, there may be there may be some big dislocations, like down the road, self-driving taxis might take jobs from taxi drivers, but this is already happening with non-AI software from you know from Uber and Lyft. Right. Um, and, and in fact, I would argue, AI software will take far fewer jobs than conventional non-AI software. So. What do I mean by conventional non-AI software? Conventional non-AI software is developed by programmers who write exact instructions that the computer executes. And non-AI software has been taking jobs in e-commerce, word processing, many other decades, many other uh, uh, areas for decades without causing widespread unemployment. And, and, you know, I don't want to minimize the human impact of job loss you know, the loss of a job can be a devastating life experience. Right. Um, but AI will not be anywhere as near as disruptive to jobs as that conventional computer software. Got it. You've um, you mentioned that you were part of a number of different um, startups, the IA type startups. Um, people are always looking for the new way to invest and. and bolster their, their money and their resources. How do, what methods are used to, I guess, evaluate a company if somebody was looking to invest in them? Like, is it geared specifically to AI or to the microprocessors or, you know, any yeah. insight? Yeah, you know, I, I, um, I talk occasionally, I give talks occasionally to investor groups about how to, in, how to invest in, in AI. Um, and you know the, the the first thing you have to do is to understand the difference between conventional software and AI, um, uh, and and recognize that a large percentage of any AI application is actually conventional software, because you can't do anything with that with that single function. You have to build, you know, software around it to actually make it do something. And second, you need to understand whether you're looking at a platform or an application. So uh, a platform is like a, um, a, a you know, maybe a, com a computer system that can uh, train AI systems really quickly or that will monitor 
AI systems to make sure there's no bias in them or, you know, there, there, there are a lot of platforms that do these things. But 95% of, you know, of what we see in, especially in angel investor groups, is uh, AI applications. You're using AI to perform a function that maybe you couldn't have performed before or one that um, you can perform better now because of AI. Uh, so, you know, what I recommend to people is, you know, don't let the entrepreneur wow you with buzzwords and with the number of AI PhDs on the staff. You know, ignore those and instead evaluate the company like you would if it wasn't an AI company. Look at the market, the the the, the sales plan, the the management team, the financials, and so on. You know, evaluate the product market fit without considering the AI because because you don't have to. You know, if you're building, if if, if an entrepreneur comes in with that um, AI system that's going to recognize guns on computer monitors, you don't need to know anything about AI to know whether to figure out whether that's going to sell, whether it's got competition, whether it's um, uh, you know, whether, whether, whether people will buy it. Um, so, and, and only then, after you do all of that, do you evaluate the value of the AI technology. Does it really enable functionality that wasn't previously available and give you a competitive advantage? Um, does it enable better, cheaper, faster functionality than the competition? Um, uh, and, and, and finally, you have to recognize that data is the key to machine learning applications. So entrepreneurs come in and say, oh, we have this proprietary AI algorithm and nobody can produce something as good. Well, that's almost always wrong. Right. What, what's, what's important is the data. If somebody has proprietary data, a huge proprietary data set, and they've run AI on it, um, and, it, and it produces something useful, that's going to be hard to compete with because it's proprietary. Or even aggregating data from public sources in a in a really unique way that would be hard to copy can be a, a competitive lead. So, um, you know, those are all factors in in um, investing in AI companies. So it's similar to any you know the way anybody would typically look into invest in anything before they look into before they invest their money. They're looking into the quality of the the company, its poten earning potential and everything. So it doesn't matter if it's AI or cars or, or application, things like that. It's You're really going back to the basics of just doing your diligence and gathering all the data you can. Absolutely. And, and actually, there's one, one other thing you really have to look at, which is you have to make sure that the entrepreneurs have, have not created an AI system that's biased. And if it's going to be used to you know, give loans or something that affects people, it has to explain how it got its answers. Got it. To kind of jump sideways a little bit, what are some examples um, movie-wise that you found to have the most realistic use of AI? I, I, I don't think I've ever seen a movie <laughs> that has... AI in it that is at all realistic. Now, now, there have been a lot of fascinating movies that, you know, you know, I like to watch a movie and let my imagination, one, uh, you know, wander. 
you know, what if right. you really could create intelligent computers? What would happen? And, you know, the movies just have some great ideas on, on what would happen. And, you know, to me, yeah, a lot of them are realistic. You know, you get, you get, you know, the computers and the robots in Westworld that become conscious and decide they don't want to, uh, um, be slaves anymore. Right. Um, uh, yeah, there's, 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 you've got the, uh, you know, HAL 9000, the computer on the spaceship that used to Space talk Odyssey, to Dave, yeah. Space Odyssey, and um, uh, heard overheard the the uh, the pilots talking about turning it off, and in order to protect itself, it shut off their oxygen. Right. Yeah, you know, all these things are, you know, I could, I could, you know, I could see almost any of them happening if we could build these truly intelligent computers and I'm pretty sure we can't. Uh, that was going to be one of the follow-up questions is what are some of the, your favorite movies that, that kind of employ artificial intelligence, whether more realistic or not, but you know, some good examples and you, know, you pointed out uh, space odyssey. I think one that sticks out for me that I think there's a lot of parallels on the reality of what the future of AI could be would be Wally. It's a bunch of robots, granted, you know, a little bit of fantasy where they kind of get their own consciousness and things. But for the most part, when they're on the big spaceship, you know, each robot has its task. You've got your your sweepers, you've got your carts, you got this. And that kind of seems to fall in line to what you were talking about, what AI really could it be and what it is at the moment. Yeah, you know, I haven't actually seen Wally. It's it is truly it's a fascinating movie on a number of levels. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's a kid's movie, but if you haven't seen it. I do recommend it. It's just, I think you might find I'll, some joy I'll, into it. Yeah, I'll definitely, I'll definitely watch it. Um, what was the genesis for you to, to kind of get into AI? I know I'm jumping way back to, to before your schooling and stuff like that, but what was the, the interest that, that sparked that for you? Yeah. I was interested in both computer programming and cognitive psychology in college. And, and as an undergraduate, I published a paper in a peer-reviewed journal uh, that showed that the human brain works like a computer, uh, at least in some you know, very minor ways. Um, Leonard Johns Hopkins, where I did my graduate work, I was fortunate enough to have the opportunity to work with three professors who were well-known in the field. Um, so I mentioned Roger Shank, uh, uh, Bert, I, I, I did a summer, I spent a summer at Yale with Roger. Uh, Bert Green was well known for a program he'd written at MIT in 1960 that could answer natural language questions about the 1959 baseball season. How many times did the Red Sox beat the Yankees? Those kinds of questions. You know, you had to enter them on punch cards. Mm -hmm. it, was, it, was, it was like, it was probably the first real natural language program. Um, uh, uh, Bert Green was also the editor of two statistics journals. And I, and I, I talked about how statistics are, are really the basis for today's AI. And uh, um, he got me involved in reviewing statistical journal article submissions and helped me get that job teaching statistics at, at Towson University. Um, uh, so, yeah, so those, those were kind of the main factors that got me into it. What are some of the more interesting or, or surprise innovations that have happened in your 40 plus years of being involved with computers? 
So, you know, the, the third cycle of AI um, has been very different than the first two that I was heavily involved in. Um, and, you know, in the in the first two cycles of AI that, that ended in the late 80s, you know, we were trying to build uh, computers that did things like humans, did things in the same way. In this third cycle of AI, we're not trying to do that. We're trying to build things that work. It's more of an engineering discipline, and it's basically building these big tables of data and learning functions, um, which has worked. Which has worked great. Uh, um, but what's been amazing to me has been uh, how well that 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 one paradigm has resulted in things that really impact the world. So, you know, in the early 2000s, uh, uh, the federal government decided, you know, we, we really need self-driving vehicles to fight wars. So they, they tried to get um, uh, universities to really work on this problem of self-driving of, of self-driving cars. And they set up a contest in 2004 Um the winner would get a million dollars for whoever could build a self-driving car that would drive through an Arizona desert, uh, you know, some huge distance, you know, like uh, 160 miles or something. Um, and the first year they all crashed and burned. You know, there, there, there were, it, it's, it, it was, it's a really interesting story, all the different types of self-driving cars and all the different entrants from universities and high schools and, you know, people in their garages who, you know, became leaders in the field of self-driving cars. Um, but then the next year, uh, a couple of them, a couple of them made it through, which is really, really spectacular. And that was the birth of the self-driving car industry. Um, then in uh, the, around 2012, there'd always been an annual contest Um to get computers to be able to uh, classify images, you know, so there's a, a data set of, you know, maybe a, a thousand different types of images. So there'll be rabbits and cars and, you know, a thousand different things with lots of different um, examples of each. And every year there's a contest for researchers to try to build systems to recognize um, all those different categories of things. And they kind of made incremental progress, but they never did really well, you know, year after year after year. And then in 2012, some researchers deployed a neural network. And the performance went up by leaps and bounds. And every year after that went up by leaps and bounds. And that's really what got today's AI started. And that, that same type of technology led to machine translation and speech recognition and recognizing photos and all the amazing things that AI can do today. And, and that was a surprise. Innovation and collaboration are, I think, two things that have been pushing humanity since the, the dawn of, of humans is, you know, there's a need and finding a way just to trial and error until you, you get success. And then when you get more people that are working to that common goal, things get done a little more expeditiously. Exactly. So exactly. we've hit that, uh, that time. I'm going to throw a 
couple of random questions at you. Um, you can either answer, decline, or answer however you please. The first question, uh, do you ever laugh at things that you shouldn't? Absolutely. <laughs> I, I do as well. I, I've, I've been in EMS for far too long not to have uh, created a little bit of a dark sense of humor. Uh, which is better, violins or pianos? Pianos. I have to disagree. I'm a big fan of the violin. I, I just love the, the versatility and sound to it. Interesting. Um, there's actually a, an artist, uh, a little more of a pop artist, but the things she does with the violin, um, it, it's just amazing. She runs around and dances on on the stage while playing the violin. It, it's, Who's that? Uh, her name is Lindsay Sterling. Uh, look her up. She's she's all over YouTube. She's got all kinds of yeah. videos. She kind of really blew up probably over the last uh, eight to eight, eight years or so. Um, she's she's truly an amazing artist in my opinion. Um, and she blends you know the, the classical use of the violin with electronic music, and it's I, I'm just fascinated by it. Yeah, I'll definitely look her up. <laughs> uh, let's see. What's your definition of the American dream? Being able to move up in the world, do better than your parents, um, and, you know, make enough money to be happy. I think I succinctly agree with that. That That's pretty on par with my, what my thought process is. Uh, let's see. What do I have here? What's your favorite sandwich? And that's a, I'll, I'll use a loose definition of a sandwich of something between two pieces of bread. Turkey club. I'm a big fan of the Reuben. No Swiss, put a little mayo on it. I'm a happy camper. I don't like um, sauerkraut. (laughs) Uh, And the last question would be, uh, would you rather have a water view or a skyline view from your apartment? Oh, definitely a water view. Agreed. Although... Yeah, we're, we're, my wife and I are actually going to look at apartments in New York City on <laughs> get, Wednesday. Get one on, on one of the sides of it so you can either overlook uh, one of the sets of water. <laughs> right. I was just down, a, we were on vacation a few weeks ago, and there, there's nothing as tranquil as just kind of sitting on a beach and just staring out to the water. You um, know, that's how I've always felt. Before I got married, I, I lived in a condo on the beach in West Haven, you know, right on the beach, used to windsurf and... And I loved it. And um, when I got married, you know, we said, well, I have to live near the water. So we bought a house on a lake, but it wasn't quite the same thing. Can't get as many then, big waves. <laughs> yeah. And then the house only had two bathrooms and I had three daughters and a wife. And that was an equation that didn't work. <laughs> so we moved again. Now we just have a backyard. Awesome. Well, I greatly appreciate your time. Where can people find your new book? Um, it, it's available pretty much anywhere where books are sold. And you can go to my website, uh, www.aiperspectives.com. Awesome. Well, I again, thank you very much for your time and um, stay healthy. You too. Thank you, Michael. I thank enjoyed you. it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of Adding Context. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at addingcontext.com. You can also support our show via Patreon. Send us feedback and show ideas to podcast at addingcontext.com.